Hello, I'm Bruce Malcolm, and this is Denise Malcolm. We're proud to share with you this podcast series, Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast by the Daniel Malcolm Foundation. Each episode will feature practical insights on how to teach your child safety in our world today. We will help parents and carers understand and navigate the challenging world of child sexual abuse. What child sexual abuse is, the behaviours and signs to be wary of, and how to respond if you are worried about this with children you know. Our host, Walkley Award-winning journalist Nance Haxon, will talk with survivors, parents, leading researchers and professionals working on the front line in this area to give you the tools and resources you need. It's time for difficult conversations on this hidden topic. This podcast talks openly about child abuse, child sexual abuse, child sexual exploitation and harmful sexual behaviours. We are aware the content raised in this podcast series may be triggering by some listeners. There are links in our show notes for organisations that can support you. Please feel free to take a breather when you need it. Today on Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast for the Daniel Morecambe Foundation, we're speaking to Shannon Malloy, whose book You Made Me This Way is giving voice to victim survivors of child sexual abuse. It's been described as a genre-defying feat of storytelling and a powerful personal investigation into trauma, hope and healing. Unfortunately, we couldn't arrange this interview with Shannon face-to-face, but please persist with the telephone quality of the interview, as the information and advice for how to prevent harmful sexual behaviours between peers and how to help victims is incredibly powerful, as it's from his own victim-survivor perspective. Also, Shannon has a new baby, who you may hear crying in the background at times, but be assured that baby is okay. You Made Me This Way is part memoir and part investigation into the taboo topic of child sexual abuse. The book gives voice to the many victim survivors who never speak about their past and hide away their shame, often with tragic consequences. Shannon encourages us all to have more open conversations about what changes are needed to better protect children into the future. You Made Me This Way is a remarkable book, really, where you interview Uh, other child victims of sexual assault. Can you tell us about what prompted you to write that book? I think it was probably a lot of the the reflecting of um, writing 14 that that sort of planted this idea in my head of of another thing that was was, uh, big and very life-shaping. But of course, this thing, this thing that happened to me when I was five, um, I had never told anyone. you know, it was it was just so big and so ugly and challenging that that I kind of put it away in a box uh, and and never wanted to let out. Um, of course, much like my experiences at fourteen, it was something that hung over me um, for for most of my adult life, and I sort of felt like the older I got, the less uh, able I was to kind of muddle my way through life and cope. Uh, and so it was in, in therapy in my late 20s that I started uh, finally talking about this thing and, and, and in kind of challenging it head on, realised how, how much of myself as an adult, um, all of the kind of the struggles that I had, the negative thoughts that I was, I was grappling with, I guess the kind of personality flaws, how much of that was linked to, 
you know, this this sort of moment at five years old that that really plucked me from one path and put me on another. Uh, and and so as a as a journalist, as someone who who is quite reflective, I I thought there was something there to explore. And and as I started talking to more people about it and confiding in others, um, I, I met a number of men who'd experienced um, very similar things to me. Um, some were more horrific. Some happened later in life. Some were perpetrated by different sorts of offenders, um, but we all kind of were in the same place. Uh, we'd all come from these vastly different backgrounds and yet we kind of ended up in the same path, I guess, on the same path, heading heading in the same direction. And I, I felt like there was something there that I wanted to explore and, and that's kind of where the book was born. And I guess the goal of it was that in realising how much we all struggle in the same ways, hoping to sort of give a little bit of reassurance to those that, that haven't had those conversations, that haven't kind of delved into therapy and whatnot, that they're certainly not alone and that, you know, I guess the, the fight is worth having. And I think uh, the way that you verbalise to your internal dialogue at times about really whether you could justify that you had actually had this experience and it wasn't as bad as other people's that you were speaking to, that was really compelling and really hard to grapple with that. And it's, it's another really common experience, you know, victim survivors, uh, a, a lot of them, I think, uh, certainly the ones that I've met, are always kind of comparing themselves to somebody else, you know, to try and, I guess, justify whether they deserve to feel the way they feel. And um, and it sounds so silly from the outside uh, looking in, but it's it's something that a lot of people grapple with. They're not sure, you know, if they deserve to struggle in the way that they struggle. Um, of course, you know, our experiences are our own and, and there's no competition, there's no... Uh, you know, there's no right or wrong way to be a survivor. And um, yeah, I, I think, again, there was a lot of comfort for me in, in meeting other people who also felt like, um, you know, they were almost imposters in this space. Um, but uh, yeah, it's part of the very unique uh, and challenging experience of being a survivor. There's a lot that, that goes on beneath the surface that's hard to hard to get a handle on. You speak about your husband at times in the book as well and just talking about really the support he provided along the way and, and the dips that you had and, and the crisis moments as you were coming to terms with it all. How important is it, do you think, to have that person that you can trust in this journey? Is that sort of, I suppose it's different for everyone, but I'm just trying to reflect on what made a difference. Well, I mean, I was, I was lucky to have married a, a psychologist, um, so that always helps. If that's available to, I'm just joking, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's free. So, uh, so, <laughs> but um, no, regardless of what his occupation is, um, he was always very encouraging of me, uh, you know, kind of not just glossing over my cracks and, and trying to, to sort of make myself a little bit wholer. And, uh, you know, he was the one who encouraged me to go to therapy in the first place. I, I definitely didn't want to do that. He was the one that encouraged me to keep writing, not necessarily for a book, but, but my own personal writing of, you know, getting thoughts down and out of my head and, and then analysing them in sort of a, a more, you know, sober, calm setting. Um, he's the one that, that has always backed me uh, without question. So he's been an, an enormous support for me. And I know just since the book has come out um, how important that is because a lot of the people I'm hearing from 
as well as men, you know, as well as the survivors themselves, I'm hearing from wives and mothers and fathers and, and children um, who want to understand better what's happening inside the head of, of their person, of, of their the survivor in their life. Um, and I think, you know, that just by virtue of what's happened and its, and its consequences and how long they can last, you know, we're all, we're all in this together, survivors and their loved ones. Um, and the role that survivors play is, uh, um, that survivors' loved ones play is really important. Um, it's, you know, it's, for me, it's, it's not always the verbal encouragement. It's the, you know, when, when my husband Rob senses that, that I'm in a sad place, he'll, you know, bring me a cup of tea in bed or he'll send me funny pictures of cats doing weird things that make me laugh. And, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's much more than verbal. It's much more than, than the kind of, you know, something's happened, here's a solution. It's, um, it's all that goes with being loved and, and loving someone. So hugely important. The sad reality is that for some people, they don't have that. You know, I'm, I've met some men in the course of writing the book. I spoke to about 12 survivors, six appear in the book, and some of them have had trouble finding relationships and sustaining relationships, which is a, a common experience of many. And so I guess it's, it's for those types of survivors that, that my heart breaks a little because they haven't found themselves on a path to journey that allows them to, to reconcile some of the things that make relationships difficult. That's why I you know, encourage anyone that I've spoken to since the book came out and I'm hearing from so many people about the benefit of asking for help, of, of speaking up when you need it and not struggling alone because really it's people love us and, and they want to support us and, and so we should let them in. And that importance of uh, the, the not having, feeling like you're being judged. I think you spoke of a couple of examples in the book where people, as you say, weren't as lucky to, to have that with devastating consequences. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's so much literature on, on the importance of, you know, people who are, who are told by a person that, you know, this horrible thing has happened to them and, and how they respond. And, and the worst thing that you can feel as a survivor is that you are being judged, whether it's that, you know, you're, you're overreacting or why are you bringing this drama up? You know, I've heard all, t all kinds of things from men about the reaction that they get when they tell people. And it really it can delay the, the recovery of, of these survivors if they don't feel safe enough to, to talk about things, to unpack things. Um, I think when something happens to you as a child that takes away that innate sense of safety, when you confront that again later in life in different ways, I think you're kind of taken back there in a sense. So, you know, not being judgmental is, is really important. And I guess just one of the, one of the greatest things that, that a survivor said to me is that he tells people, whether it's loved ones or friends or whatever, and, and sometimes he just wants them to listen. He doesn't need advice or solutions or anything else he just wants to be heard uh, and for a lot of survivors they have felt unheard for a lot of their life. That lived experience that you've written about so vividly it really contributes now to as you mentioned such a broad body of work and research on child sexual abuse it really gives voice as we say to so many victim survivors but how do you think that sharing that lived experience can help improve our knowledge on preventing sexual abuse and harmful sexual behaviours in children? Well, I, I mean, it's one of the things that, that Bruce and Denise do so well, and that is educating kids. 
one of the, the most common experiences from all of the men that I spoke to, and I should say that my book my book deals with male survivors, which is why I'm not talking about, of course, you know, females uh, and girls experience this at greater rates, but that the men that I spoke to, and I'm sure the, the women and girls feel the same, that that sense that they're not sure who to tell and if they can even tell someone, they don't know how to describe what's happened, that, that sort of uncertainty about even what their body is and what it does and how it works. I think secrecy and shame is what locks people into such a, a disastrous cycle. And really it's what allows abuse to, to continue. And what Bruce and Denise do so well is to teach kids about their bodies and about themselves so that if something, God forbid, happens, or they're in a position where they don't feel safe, they know how to identify it and they know what to say to somebody. Everybody in this space overwhelmingly agrees that the way to finally defeat abuse once and for all is with education. And it's scary at times because you think, you know, when I say education, I'm not talking about sitting down a group full of five-year-olds and, and having really explicit conversations with them. It's age appropriate at different levels. It's circumstance-based. It's all backed by, by proper research from experts from around the world. These tools are, exist. We just are really, really slow at implementing them. But there are ways, really, really effective ways that you can reach young people where they are and, and at their age and explain to them what to do, what to look out for. And, and it's, it's so effective. I think that's, that would have helped me at five years old to be able to say to my parents or a teacher or someone I trusted, this thing happened and I don't understand it, but I don't like it and I need help. It would have helped with all of the men that I interviewed for this book, being able to know who they are, what, what the kind of world around them is like and how to recognize safe people. So I think that's where the key is. I really do. And it's, it can even be as simple at a certain age. Um, there was a fantastic paper I read out of the US that really distilled in such simple terms for me how to kind of help particularly young children understand the danger signs. And that is that, you know, you basically say to them, you should never feel like something needs to be a secret. You should never feel ashamed. If you do, you must tell me because that something has gone wrong. And it's as simple as that. And even for, as you say, in an age-appropriate sense, but even for smaller children learning to call their body parts by the correct names. Absolutely. I mean, we've all got one. <laughs> like it's, you know, <laughs> I think we set kids up for, for unideal circumstances when we, you know, mystify the body. Like it's, it's crazy. And the more they know about, again, in an age-appropriate way, the more they know about things, the more empowered they are. It's their body. They should understand it and what's right and what's wrong for them. And, and I think it's just, it's so important. I'm, I'm a huge advocate for education. I know it's scary and it's complex, but it's, it's what keeps kids safe, I think. You know, we spent most of my childhood, I remember whole afternoons devoted to it about stranger danger and, you know, child safety houses and whatever. And it's like, there was nothing about my body and my sense of, of self and my sense of safety. So yeah, we've got a long way to go. Hopefully that's changing a little bit now, but yes, and I remember that too. I think that was the, the definition of uh, child safety work in the 80s and 90s. What else you wish could have been available to you at the time to prevent 
that happening and to help you recover? I mean, my situation is a little bit tricky and it's it's what I talk about a lot in the book. My What happened to me was what the industry, um, or I guess the sector I should call it, refers to as peer-on-peer -peer abuse, where it was by an older boy but still a child. And so it was kind of tricky for, for me because, I don't know, I, I'm not sure, sh short of it stopping, if I'd, if I'd felt empowered to tell my parents or someone, short of it stopping, I'm not sure what else could have happened. And it goes into a really tricky conversation about when is someone a perpetrator and when should they be dealt with by the law and when should they be dealt with in kind of a more health and mental health circumstance. But overwhelmingly, the, the men that I spoke to, half of them, uh, at least, probably a little bit more than half, had had interactions with police over their abuse. None of them had a good experience. Nobody who went to the police uh, came away feeling satisfied about their pursuit of justice. Uh, and I think that is something that, while there may have been some progress in, in recent times, I think that we're far from there. We're far from there. When you feel like, you can't go to the people whose job it is to keep you safe because of, you know, they tell you it's not worth it. Don't don't go down this path or they don't believe you or they tell you that it's too hard. It's your word against theirs. I, this is where I think survivor informed learnings can be so powerful. It's as simple as, you know, what, what kind of room do you put someone in when they come in to report child sexual abuse? Should it be a room that everyone can see into? Should it be a room where they feel exposed and watched and judged? You know, courthouses. The, the, the layout of most courthouses is that when you go in, you are in the room next to the person that the charges have been brought against. So you, as however old you are, you are re-traumatized by having to sit next to the perpetrator who did these things to you, separated by a wall. And then you go into a court and you're allowed to be berated by a defense barrister and called a liar and, you know, all, all sorts of horrible things. There's so much of the experience of being a survivor that could be informed by simply listening to the people who these things have happened to and making, making things just a little bit friendlier. But, um, but overwhelmingly, it's the, the law and justice side of things that, that continue to fall well short of expectations. You also speak about shame in a lot in both books it's quite palpable what impact does shame have on the lives of victims and survivors of sexual abuse oh gosh uh how long have you got yeah um. <laughs> i suppose just trying to think of what tips you might have how people and particularly men and boys as you've mentioned the the, the really that you concentrated on in, in your second book, but they can overcome that sense of shame because it seems so paralyzing. It, it is, it is. And, you know, shame, is, shame doesn't discriminate based on, on gender, but, um, but I think the experience of shame for men is, is unique in some ways. I think men, regardless of what's happened to them, probably carry a, a certain, you know, greater level of shame. Uh, there's something about the male condition, particularly in this country, that means that shame is ever present and it, it makes some men harder and, you know, less open and, and whatever. Um, and, and so when you add on to that something as, as horrifying as child sexual abuse, then 
the consequences of shame can be significant. The, the health outcomes for male survivors of child sexual abuse are, are grim. And I, I, I really want to emphasize that it's generally amongst men who haven't sought treatment. So treatment is extremely effective. Early intervention in childhood is, is overwhelmingly effective. For those men who never tell anyone, who try and go it alone, it's shame that is the kind of cancer within them that, that strangles almost all hopes of, of joy and contentedness. That sounds really dramatic, but, but it's not. And I think shame lives in darkness and it's allowed to kind of fester. And so men who, or all survivors, anyone who, who has shame and doesn't challenge it is kind of condemned to be, to be haunted by it. So letting someone in, you know, that shines light on the shame. Uh, it makes it smaller and, and makes it easier to kind of cope with. I've, I've let many people in and I've, I've spoken about what happened to me in the most public of way. I, it doesn't mean that I'm cured of shame, but, but it's, it's, gosh, it's so much smaller than it was. And, and I'm so glad that, that I went on a journey of healing, uh, and, and really got to sort of face my shame head on and, and challenge it because it, it can be quite destructive. I think it's shame is something that's quite hard to define because it's a very personal thing that you kind of know it when you when you see it but it doesn't it's it's not an inevitability so much of of the survivor experience is feeling like you've been dealt a life sentence and and that your your fate is kind of sealed and while there are many shared experiences I don't I don't think it's a life sentence I think that like anything you can heal and you can find tools to cope and you can, you know, minimize that shame and, and you can live a fantastic life. Um, I'm, I'm proof of that. Many of the men in my book are proof of that. Yeah, it's not a foregone conclusion. And, and I think until you, you confront the shame, maybe it's a little hard to see that. As part of that process for you, you confronted the person who did the sexual assault. Is that something that you would, I don't know if recommend is the word, is it something that people should contemplate or that, that must a very interesting aspect of your book? Yeah. Look, I, probably not, <laughs> I, um, I would say. It's, it's one of the, it's the sort of thing that I did that, it depends on the day whether I feel like it was a good or a bad idea. I think for me, because he was he was a young person as well, I had just too many unanswered questions that I needed to address, not just for the book, but just for my own sort of sense of sense of self. And so I guess in a way it was it was worth doing. But to to speak to a person that has inflicted a lot of pain on you is is no small thing. And I know from from the men that that I've met uh, who have sat in a courtroom facing their perpetrator that you know they they never wanted to see that person again. Um, so it's really it's really tricky. I I can, I can see a scenario where you know I, I found this guy, spoke to him, and and it I would have had no answers. I was just really lucky, I guess, that I got a few, and it was. It was in the end an important part of, of my story, but uh, yeah, it's it's tricky. It's tricky. I know I'm, I'm, a guy I know is, is going through the process at the moment of speaking with police about his perpetrator, and and he's he's really facing the 
the prospect of having to see this person in a courtroom again after three decades, um, I can't imagine what what that must feel like. Uh, and I don't I don't envy him at all. I do admire the the just incredible strength and courage that he shows. But yeah, to 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 have to be confronted by that person again is um yeah, it's a big deal. I think it showed, uh, though, you provided some insights into really some of the really some of the darker memories of the experiences that that boy had at home, which were abuse, really. How did you empathise or come to that point of being able to empathise with that person who had such a significant impact on your well-being? Yeah, it's it's part of the the grey area of peer-on-peer abuse. I mean, you know, child sexual abuse. When an adult does something horrible to a child, it's, it is, I reckon, the most black and white thing that we have in life. It's horrible. It should never have happened. You should be punished. There are uncomfortable grey areas in peer-on-peer abuse where, you know, I just don't, I can't accept that a child is born evil or is born programmed to do the wrong thing. So when a child does something like what happened to me, I think something has gone wrong. I felt that before I spoke to him, I felt that I think just by, I don't know, having a, having a kind of an empathetic view of the world, maybe, a, you know, an optimism more than a hope that, you know, kids, kids are pure in some ways. I don't know. And so it turned out after I spoke to him that he, he sort of told me a little bit about his childhood. I remembered some of the things that I'd seen. We, we shared sort of stories about just the horrific physical abuse that that he suffered and you know while it's not an excuse it's an explanation and it gave me a kind of different perspective on things that maybe he's he's as much of a victim as I am in some ways again that's a really uncomfortable thing to sit with but that it's an important consideration in the in the peer-on-peer abuse space which is you know Everyone I speak to who works in in child safety or works for organisations that deal with child sexual abuse, the peer-on-peer stuff is still very tricky. It's very, (laughs) you're dealing with other children and, and are they, should they be punished? Are they victims as well? There's a lot, there's a lot that goes into it. So again, my kind of, my experience is a little bit different, but yeah, I think someone Someone said to me, it's a recycled quote, that they they say most abusers were abused, um, but very few who are abused will abuse, if that makes sense. So, you know, there's there's something that has gone on and, and as such the cycle continues. It brings me to just a quote from your book that I kept for just uh, for our discussion where you, I think you touch on this again, but much of the issue of child sexual abuse is still taboo, you say in the book. For all of the awareness, for all of the very public cases over recent years, it's just not the kind of thing that people want to confront. It's certainly not something you bring up in polite company that levels of suffering inflicted on the most vulnerable in society children is just too much to bear and so we look away have we improved now is your are are these discussions helpful is it really come down to talking about these issues absolutely it does and we're we're getting better you know I mean you and I are sitting here having a conversation right now so we're certainly getting better 
I have to say that, you know, I, I, I promoted this book. I mean, I'm still going, but, you know, in, in trying to promote the book and talk about the book when it was released, there were vast uh, parts of the media that just would not touch it. Uh, you know, being told, oh, that's, that's not appropriate for this time of day. Uh, oh, there might be little ones listening. And I just think, well, good. Like, isn't that good? And, and the, the, the trauma of abuse doesn't stop between 6 p.m. and 9 p.m. when, you know, like, it's just, this is silly. This is the sort of stuff that we need to be talking about. Again, you pick the content for the audience, but I think the more that we ignore this, the more likely it is to continue. Um, we need to, you know, life is not easy at times and there are ugly parts to it that we need to confront and discuss. If we don't, then we don't learn anything as humans and, and history repeats. There is nothing that, that encapsulates that more than child sexual abuse. Instances aren't dropping, in fact, they're rising. And we need to ask ourselves why. And I think it's because it's ugly. We don't want to talk about it. You know, in, in writing the book, uh, the 18 months before it came out, everyone's excited about the first book and they've loved it and they've loved the play and they're excited about the show. And then they say, what are you working on next? And I'd tell them, oh, I'm writing a book about child sexual abuse. That's it. End of conversation. <laughs> like there's no, there's no follow up. And it's like, I get it, but you know, like the number of people that this happens to, you're in a, go to your doctor's office, a third of the room probably has an experience with this. Go to an airport, you know, hundreds of people walking past you. This is not something that happens to a small group of people. It's not something that happens to a certain segment of the community. This is huge and it, and it has massive consequences, not just on the person themselves, not just on their family, but on all of society. And if we have any chance of, of killing this awful, awful thing, then we need to talk about it. We need to lean into it being really uncomfortable and really sad. Because unfortunately, that's the reality that, that survivors face. So we owe it to them. We owe it to, to generations of children to come that, that we have uncomfortable conversations. Well, as we bring our conversation to a close, I just want to give that voice again to victim survivors such as yourself, Shannon, and, and how you mentioned before that you just wish that you were the, the, the victim survivors were listened to a lot more, even in courtroom design and things like that. Are there other um, practical aspects perhaps that you can give from your perspective? What would you like to see still done in this space to change and to, to help people? Um, money, lots and lots of money for everything from frontline mental health services to, you know, there's a support group for, for adult men uh, called Samson, the Survivors and Mate Support Network. It runs on the smell of an oily rag. It gets, you know, cents in the dollar from the government to run support groups. They have a wait list of hundreds of men who are desperate for help, just waiting for a spot in a support group. Why not give them a fraction of the money that the government spends on letterhead and help hundreds more men, you know, like there are, there are so many great organizations doing their best to help people. There are incredible foundations that, that do vital work that are, you know, charity like the, like Bruce and Denise doing just extraordinary work day in, day out money, give them lots of money. Like, you know, we need to scale up these in incredible initiatives 
because they they save lives they they help survivors they help prevent children from having to go through this and they deserve just to be plated in gold i think and then of course mental health services in general are are appalling so yeah money 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 Oh, Shannon, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Is there anything else that you would like to add that perhaps I haven't uh, asked today? Oh, it's it's something I say often. It's something that I started saying, you know, when I was talking about 14 and, and my adolescence and the challenges there. It's something that I've, I say even louder now, talking about child sexual abuse, and it's the message that it gets better. A, a horrible day, a painful week. Uh, you know, a rough couple of months, whatever it is, it always gets better. There are people who are who are ready and waiting to help you, and it's always worth pushing on. And that brings me to your epilogue. There was a lovely aspect in your epilogue that I think uh, echoes that, where you say that much as child sexual abuse robs victims of their innocence and potential, you hope that in describing it as such that the takeaway isn't that survivors are broken beyond repair, that there is hope, essentially. Absolutely. Thank you, Shannon. Thank you so much. Lovely to chat. And that's the end of this episode of Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast by the Daniel Morecambe Foundation. Make sure you go to the links in our show notes for resources and support. Remember, parents and carers, you've got this. You can subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast provider and give us a like on your socials. And if you found this helpful, please share far and wide and rate and review it too so more people can find us. Even if it's just telling a friend about this podcast, that's great. We want to empower as many parents and carers as possible each and every episode. You can support the work of the Daniel Morecambe Foundation by visiting our website and donating or call us for more information on 1300 326 435. Thank you for never forgetting, Daniel. You guys are very much part of the solution. Please complete the survey. Thank you for listening. Talk to you again next episode.